I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back, everyone, to Mind Rolling, and I'm Raghu Marcus. We have a terrific podcast today. Very, very, very special person. His name is Jim Doty, and he wrote a book that just is just in release called Into the Magic Shop, Combining the Forces of a Rewired Brain and an Open Heart. And he is a neurosurgeon, and he's doing a lot of work uh, around the investigation of the brain and the heart and their connection, and he has a uh, wonderful foundation that's doing a lot of work around compassion and altruism at Stanford University. So before we get to this podcast, and I'll tell you a little bit more about it, I want to talk about, I haven't been doing much about recommending things that I like that you can get on Amazon. Of course, everybody knows going to Amazon and buying whatever it is you need on a week-to-week or day-to-day basis gets Mind Rolling and MindPod Network some sustenance from your purchases. And uh, so we encourage you again and again, to bookmark our link, our Amazon link, which you can find on mindpodnetwork.com or on MindRolling. And you can then just click on it whenever you're going to go ahead and buy something at Amazon. I have a couple of things that uh, I did, I did got, a, got off my ass and put some attention to this. And I found this is unbelievable. This is, it's a, it's called a Senglid pulse light bulb. That's S as in Sam, E-N-G-L-E-D, pulse light bulb. Okay. First of all, this energy efficient LED bulb has a secret. It's also a Bluetooth speaker. It pipes tunes to literally any corner of the house. Can you believe this? And it, it's not nothing. It's 150 bucks, But can you imagine getting wherever you want? You put this light bulb and you've got music from your central uh, amplifier, tuner, whatever it is. I thought it was pretty far out. I'm going to go get me one. 
So uh, that's the nutball thing in terms of advice. And here is, uh, I'll go to the opposite end of this, which is a recommendation on a book. It's called The Teacup and the Skull Cup. And this is a book from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. We talk about him ad nauseum on Mind Rolling. Uh, amazing, amazing teacher who has done so much to bring Buddhism to the West. Uh, here's a little uh, blurb about it. Trungpa Rinpoche's astonishing take on Zen and Tantra reads like a speech delivered from another planet. What we have here is less a work of explanation and exposition than a bravura, bravura, bravura performance, a wild, weird demonstration of intellectual daring, an outrageously dead-on spiritual vision. That's Norman Fisher's review. Norman Fisher's a pretty cool guy himself. So there you go. Go ahead and get that one. I am. And then music. I love music and I love discovering new things. And I discovered something new that you know, many of you probably or may already be in on. It's like a world jazz fusion band called Snarky Puppy. Love the name. And they just put out a record called Family Dinner Volume 2. They've been around for a while. This is their 10th record. I never heard of them. So, uh, and there's, I think there's a film that accompanies the record. And uh, so they feature a bunch of different really amazing musicians, including David Crosby. And uh, I did uh, go up and uh, take a listen to David, and what he did was absolutely gorgeous. They also got the guitarist Charlie Hunter, the singer-songwriters Becca Stevens and Chris Turner. But really blew my mind was the Afro-pop singer Salif Keita. By the way, get anything of his, most especially his ballads are the most transforming, transporting music I have ever heard, just about. I mean, one of the great, great singers. And also Susanna Baca, who's an Afro-Peruvian folk singer. So uh, I think this is an incredibly solid recommendation here. Uh, n never mind the light bulb speaker, which is pretty far out, too. So here we're going to go with James Doty and... Um, and my chat with him. I mean, just imagine, just to give you a touch of a background, just imagine you grow up extraordinarily poor. Your father is absent most of the time, an alcoholic, and very threatening. So you never know when he comes home what's going to happen. And your mother is uh, quite depressed, deep depression. You, you just absolutely are uh, living a very bereft kind of life. And that's Jim Doty. So imagine, at 12 years old, he was into magic. He loved magic. So he went and he lived uh, in the, sort of the, away, for, uh, not far from uh, L.A. in a place called Lancaster. It's in the desert. And he went to a magic shop. And he goes in the shop and there's a, a woman who's kind of minding it for her son. And what ensues is her offer to teach him some practical methodology about being able to change his life from the inside out. Twelve years old, she spends the whole summer, he goes in there, I don't know how many times a week, and he's taught all sorts of, from... Uh, one would kind really call really uh, mindfulness exercises, basically. Back then, they wouldn't have been known as that. And this completely changes his life, and he becomes this extraordinary neurosurgeon. If you can believe this, I mean, it's an I mean, I thought I got the book, and I, I think I say this in the, uh, in the chat with Jim. Usually, I get these books, and if I'm going to talk to somebody about a book, my time is a little bit limited, maybe a deep excuse, but uh, so I will go quickly through a book. I, I'm good at speed reading, and uh, 
you know, I couldn't do it with this book. I got caught right from the beginning. Just went through, read it in a day and a half. It's not a large book, but absolutely, as I said in, in the interview, I call it a page burner. Wonderful, wonderful book, and 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 the the it, so it's it's engaging because of his story, but it's also got so much uh, amazing information about the brain and the heart and so on. I think you will find it um, quite engaging, everybody. I'm really happy that I was able to talk to Jim. One more thing. I just want to uh, do a little uh, commercial for my other hat, which is uh, Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. Ramdas is having this amazing retreat. We are in Maui, May 4th through 9th, with Lama Suryadas, who is on this network, the MindPod network. Uh, includes our guru, Duncan Trussell, our podcast guru. He's going to be out there. Includes Trevor Hall, amazing singer-songwriter who's part of our gang. Going to be doing a concert and some workshops. My lovely wife, Saraswati Marcus, is going to be doing yoga in the mornings alongside of Benji Wertheimer from Shantala. So it's a music yoga thing. It's extraordinary stuff is going to happen. And Nina Rao from Krishnanas' uh, group is going to be doing the uh, evening chanting along with uh, Mirabai Bush, who is also headlining with Ramdas, doing Dharma talks and meditations. So it's quite a lineup. Go to ramdas.org, go to events, and you'll see way more information. And please do join us. And now, here is my chat with Jim Doty. Well, I'm with Jim Doty today. And Jim has written a book that I uh, wanted to talk to him about. Actually, uh, Jim is a mutual friend of uh, one of our other mind-rolling and MindPod Network um, podcasters, Mirabai Bush. And that's how we met, actually. Indeed. Yes. So welcome to the podcast, Jim. Great to have you. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be with you. So, okay, this is what I was, I, was, I was telling Jim. I was going to say something, and I wanted to save it for the podcast because I thought, okay, they're sending me a book, and yeah, we're talking about a, Jim is a neurosurgeon. I'm going to get into you know, everything that he does. And I thought, I'm going to get a book that's going to have a lot of technical stuff about the makeup of the brain and uh, neuroscience and... Uh, and and all of that, and I thought, okay, I'm going to really have to dig in here, and I'm going to have to use my brain way more than I'm capable of, probably. <laughs> so I started reading the book, Jim, and I got pulled in by your story. It, it just absolutely the opposite of what I thought I was going to get, because I just... I, it was a page burner. How could this book be a page burner? Okay. <laughs> and it is, folks out there. It's called Into the Magic Shop, A Neurosurgeon's Quest to Discover the Mysteries of the Brain and the Secrets of the Heart. And uh, I, I know you don't know much about my background. Again, folks, everybody, I, we just met this second, which That's is true. the delight of podcasts, really. Uh, but I am um, a good friend and had been a, have been a student of Ramdas, who I, I know you know who Ramdas is, and uh, went off to India. And uh, after I heard his first few talks back in the day, and followed him when he went back the second time, and met Neem Karoli Baba, his guru, which became mine, and uh, and the this. One of the reasons I'm telling this little bit to you right now, because when I say secrets of the heart, okay, because one day I'm sitting with him, and he's sitting, so we were like 23, anywhere from 18 to 25 at the time, uh, you know, a bunch of Westerners, people that you know, Dr. Larry Brilliant, I know that you know who Larry is. Oh, absolutely. And so there we were, and he's got a bunch of Indians sitting around him, and he said, you know, 
these people, they came all the way from America, Canada in my case, and they came for no reason. They're not interested in worldly stuff. They're not interested in, in, in me granting people babies and jobs and matriculation from exams and, and, and so on and so on. They came for the secrets of the heart, and I'm going to give it to them. So when I read this, I thought, holy Jesus, right? And then, so Jim was, everybody out there, was so fortunate to have something happen to him. And I'm going to ask you to describe it, but it was a meeting with a remarkable person, something that Gurdjieff might have talked about. Uh, Jim met that person, and do you mind? I, you know, Jim's written this book. It just came out, everybody. And you got to go to Amazon and get this book. Everybody, go to Amazon and buy. I'm telling you, I'm not kidding when I say how much. Not only does this pull you into Jim's story, but it has some wonderful offerings about just how to live a balanced life, which is one of the things he's going to talk about and uh, his experience. But do you mind just relating a little bit about your background and then your meeting? Sure, not at all. Um, yeah, it's uh, actually an extraordinary story. Um, I uh, met this person at age 12, believe it or not, and um, I grew up in poverty. My father uh, was an alcoholic. My mother had had a stroke and was partially paralyzed and had a seizure disorder and uh, was chronically depressed, had attempted suicide uh, multiple times. We were on public assistance. Neither had gone to college. And unfortunately, in that type of an environment, it's not only difficult to function day to day, but it's difficult to uh, think about a future, at least a future that you want to think about. And uh, if I was not particularly intelligent or had some degree of self-awareness, it probably wouldn't have mattered because I would have accepted my lot and simply that was it. But being in that particular situation, it was even more difficult because I looked around me and couldn't explain why I was put into this position. And especially as children, what often happens is that you somehow think the reason is, is because you're defective or you have something wrong with you or uh, you're not good enough. And all of that was going through my head during that period of time. And I was lost uh, and was becoming a juvenile delinquent. The interesting thing is I was interested in magic and I was riding my bike and uh, I saw a magic shop at a strip mall that I had never seen before and I went in and uh, there was this incredible woman who I describe as an earth mother type, which I think a lot of people can identify with, who had this radiant smile that was embracing. And um, she looked up at me um, over her glasses. Uh, she was reading a book. And uh, uh, I asked her a question, and she said, well, I am just uh, sort of uh, tending the shop while my son, who's really the magician, is off doing an errand. I'm his mother. And she said, if you have any questions about magic, I don't know any regarding the magic in the store. But that led to us having a, com a wonderful conversation. And, you know, when you're 12 years old and people don't particularly pay attention to you, having somebody uh, so kind, so uh, just open was actually unusual for me. And we had this nice conversation. And she was actually fairly insightful and asked some penetrating questions. And after this brief dialogue of that lasted maybe 20 or 30 minutes, she said, you know, I really like you. I'm here for another six weeks. And if you come in every day, I'll teach you something that I think could change your life. Now imagine uh, in this day and age, if somebody said that to you, unfortunately, you'd think they're a pedophile or they're <laughs> crazy. Uh, but at that time, uh, it was maybe a, a greater period of innocence. And uh, I had, frankly, nothing else to do. And I showed up every day. And I tell people that prior to showing up, I felt like a leaf being blown by an ill wind. I had uh, no ability to plan anything. My life was chaotic. I didn't know what was going to happen next, uh, from moment to moment because my personal situation was just a disaster. And after that interaction with this woman over the six-week period for an hour or two every day, I really went from this 
belief that I had limited to no possibilities to one of potentially unlimited possibilities. And I tell people now, reflecting back, that that was my first experience with neuroplasticity because fundamentally that interaction with that woman changed how my brain was wired. And of course, I think many of us have heard this saying, it is not the events that are are happening to you that determine your life. It is how you respond to the events. And she taught me how to look at the world in a different way, respond a different way. And that fundamental training that she gave me and the time she took with me changed the trajectory of my life. And and you do say at one point, here was one person who cared enough to see you differently. That is huge. Uh, and I, I just go back to my own experience uh, uh, in India with uh, Neem Karoli Baba. Here was one person who cared enough to see my true self and not judge all the other bullshit that I had going on. Uh, so uh, that is such a huge piece of grace. I mean, I can only think it of, think of it like that. It's, I mean, in the circumstances that you were in at the time were so treacherous. Uh, I mean, as I was reading it, uh, it was really difficult. I mean, very difficult. So, uh, and then, and, and some of the things, uh, everybody, uh, Jim was given um, uh, the kinds of practice. I mean, you got a basic practice that we share with what I do with uh, Ramdas and Ramdas.org and how, you know, we share mindfulness and meditation courses. I mean, she gave you some of the things that we share out there. No, and imagine this was in 1968. So this was certainly not in any way common, uh, nor did it necessarily, at least in the West, have a name. And I can only imagine that she must have had an experience with practitioners of uh, Eastern philosophy uh, who understand how to cultivate the mind and the heart. And just by the nature, again, reflecting back about her personality and how radiant it was, uh, that clearly was the case because I think you've had the experience uh, with your own guru. And I have been blessed to have interactions with really some of the major spiritual leaders of our time, including uh, the Dalai Lama, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, Amma, Eckhart Tolle, Sogo Rinpoche, and a whole variety of others who have really amazingly uh, have embraced uh, me and my own uh, searching and have been kind enough to spend great deals of time with me. And uh, to have someone who recognizes immediately who you are really and not the projection that we try to uh, put out there to give people the impression we have our act together or they're n- we're not in pain or suffering and uh, who really see into our heart and our possibilities and our potential and say, regardless of what's happened to you in the past, um, I believe in your future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is... Uh... I mean, I think you even say it uh, at one point. That famous saying, "When the when the student is ready, the teacher appears." And for no, that, but... you know, and for that to happen at the age of twelve, I mean, obviously, uh, this is not a matter of just this lifetime. This is a matter of 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 good works that have happened in previous lifetimes, and so on. But. Uh, the interesting thing is that you went from that point. You were able to have the belief that you that she shared with you, the belief in true self, basically, and the belief in intention. Talk about what she talked to you about. I think this is really important for for everybody, and especially we have a lot of uh, younger folks that are listening to these podcasts. Uh, and in, intention. I think is something I'd love for you to share in terms of what she shared with you. 
Well, I think, uh, first of all, many of us don't realize that we have created in our heads a conversation or a dialogue that's often independent of us that isn't necessarily us or beneficial to us. And as a result, based on how we've grown up, what people have told us about who we are, we allow that to actually become who we are and, uh, and limit us. And what she taught me was, first of all, um, uh, techniques that are commonly used today to uh, relax the body and uh, gain intent, uh, attention and focus. And then um, also to appreciate that this conversation is happening and uh, understand that what happens in your body oftentimes or your peripheral physiology is a response to that conversation that's going on or that dialogue that's going on. And I use the uh, metaphor that this is a DJ in your head. and. And she taught me to understand that it exists, that it's not me, and uh, ultimately not to listen to it. And then after that, in some ways to turn the volume down and then off and then change the station. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, And then once I was able to do that, I also saw that What was limiting to myself, and I think many, many people, is in some ways responding to that dialogue or other people's interpretation of your abilities or lack thereof, and then limiting yourself. And as a result, you were looking through, and again, I use the metaphor of a windshield uh, in the fog or this partially fogged up where... You want to go somewhere, but because the the windshield's fogged, you can't really see. You can only see indistinct images. But as you gain expertise, if you will, in developing your intention and uh, having a, a clarity of purpose, what happens is the fog uh, starts uh, diminishing or lightening. And then you sort of are able to see some street signs and maybe the direction the road is in. And then over time, you're actually able to read them and see where you're going and make the right uh, or correct turns that ultimately lead you uh, to the place you wish to be. Now, oftentimes, I think, as we all appreciate who've been doing these practices for some time, it's not always the straight line, (laughs) Uh, it can have twists and turns and wrong turns. But if your intention is correct and um, uh, pure and, I, and uh, that you ultimately uh, get there and sometimes you're surprised uh, that you get there uh, with all the other things that have happened along the way. But uh, it's really a blessing and a joy to have her taking the time to show me, if you will, how to remove that fog and be able to uh, uh, drive uh, a little bit uh, better. Yeah, change that station, yeah. I wish somebody had showed me how to change that station at 12, Jim, let me tell you. But I was, I, I have nothing to complain about. I was very fortunate when I was in my early 20s, so I'll take it. Um, but and going forward, it was that power of that intention and power of the focus, attention, that enabled you to, uh, we won't get into the details because everybody go out and buy the book, uh, but uh, it enabled you to uh, fulfill a dream that you had, which was to be a physician, and uh, and as I read this book, I mean, this was no uh, small task for you to get where you needed to go. And, uh, and, it, and as far as I'm concerned, completely as a result of, of the uh, focus and attention and intention, um, I think is a super important thing, especially people that are suffering. And we all, we all have that going on day to day um, and using um, focus and intention 
is a way to help us change that channel and not uh, victimize ourselves. So I, I think that, that that's a super part of the, of the book, Jim. No, no. I, I mean, having compassion for yourself and also recognizing that no matter what someone may externally appear, oftentimes they are suffering deeply and uh, uh, to have an appreciation of that fact. But in the context that you were just discussing about being able to go to medical school and stuff, and as you've seen from uh, the narrative in the story, uh, it, there are some extraordinary events uh, that happen. But just to comment specifically about that, I had had a dream of going to medical school. And imagine <clears throat> uh, I ultimately did go to college. Um, but I had to leave home multiple times, uh, as an example, to get my father out of jail, to uh, you know, deal with complex family situations, such as my mother attempting suicide and being in the hospital, and uh, also working a significant amount. And these are not the um, events that sort of lead to being able to really focus on schoolwork. Uh, obviously. Mm. And as a result, uh, I actually uh, did not do well. And uh, um, when it came time to apply to medical school at, at my college, um, there was a requirement you be interviewed uh, before you got a letter of recommendation to medical school. And the reason I bring this up is so many of us uh, oftentimes listen to what other people say to us about our own abilities. And really what they're doing is they're commenting about their own inability or their own fear or uh, anxiety about doing something. And by projecting that on you and then limiting you and your success, it makes them not so feel, bad, uh, feel so bad about themselves. And it's something I think is very, very common. And because of my own difficulties in college, I had uh, many, and I will say quote-unquote friends, who were kind enough to tell me I would never go to medical school or uh, achieve my own personal dream. Uh, and as a result, when I went to apply uh, to have this interview for this letter, uh, the secretary looked at my file and she said, well, for me to give you an appointment is really a waste of everyone's time. Now imagine you're 19 or 20 years old and somebody has already determined that your life, who you are, is a waste of their time mm. to spend with you. I mean, mm. uh, how horrible. And I couldn't even imagine saying that to anybody and, and, and imagine the hurt and the pain that that would inflict on somebody and to say it so casually. So I said to her, and again, thank goodness I had had the – uh, time with Ruth, who's the name of this woman in the book, uh, she made me understand that I did not have to allow people to treat me that way. And I told this woman I would not leave until she gave me an appointment. And ultimately, she did give me an appointment. And to make a long story short, I was allowed to have this interview, interview uh, which was three professors and uh, and uh, I walked into this room, and all of them uh, were sitting there with their arms crossed. And you know what that means. They're disinterested. Uh, again, they're telling you by their body language you're wasting their time. But instead of waiting for them really to continue down that path, I asked them who gave them the right to destroy people's dreams. Mm. <laughs> Powerful part of the book, too. And, and the thing is, you know, so many criteria which are used to limit people uh, are arbitrary uh, and they mean nothing. And what I did over a 45-minute period of time uh, in which, frankly, I ended up lecturing them was to also uh, tell them who had the right to objectify another human being mm -hmm. and that I was more than just a grade. Uh, I was a person who had experiences, good and bad. I had dreams. I had aspirations. And I would not allow them to simply make me be a number. Mm. Mm. Yeah. How many of us have had that experience? Very few of us have not uh, in some situation or another in our lives. 
I want to just, do you mind if I read a little something from, from the book? Because there's a few passages that I just loved. And sure. One of the things, I mean, Jim, in this book, does get uh, into some really amazing um, descriptions of the brain, which he operates on on a day-to-day basis. In fact, I'm doing this podcast, and and he's in his doctor clothes, which... <laughs> Which, as soon as I see that, I, I get a whole other different attitude about the person. Oh, my God, I'll be good. <laughs> you know? uh, so the, so these things are ex- just extraordinary in the book. You know, your, your knowledge around the brain and the physical properties of it, and, and now that you've gotten in, into the neuroscience of it and your work with the Dalai Lama, which we'll, we'll, we'll also mention in a bit... But then, before I read this particular passage, I started to think to myself, what about the heart? So important in my tradition, the path of the heart, bhakti yoga is the tradition that I'm in. Let me just read this one thing. Research shows the heart to be an organ of intelligence with its own profound influence, not only from our brain, but on our brain our emotions, our reasoning, and our choices. Rather than passively waiting for instructions from the brain, the heart not only thinks for itself, but sends out signals to the rest of the body. I mean, I've never heard any, I've never read anything like this. I've, ne- I've understand it in a way uh, that I could never speak of it. Can you just speak to this a little bit about what what the heart and relationship to the brain? Sure. Um, a lot of people don't appreciate that there is this very strong uh, heart or brain and mind connection, and it's mediated through something called the vagus nerve, <clears throat> and uh, that connects to the brain and the brain stem. Uh, and it's not a one way street. It's a two way street where there's constant uh, flow in both directions. And, uh, and also uh, that flow extends to other organs in the body. And really this is how uh, your body is able to communicate about events that are happening just from sensory receptors in your body, uh, but also how your body, based on input into your mind, uh, uh, affects the heart and the other organs. As an example, uh, many people don't appreciate that through the vagus nerve or this uh, brain-heart connection is mediated uh, our flight, fight, or freeze response, uh, which is our threat response, and uh, also uh, mediates, if you will, our heart response in the sense of metaphorical heart of kindness and caring and connecting. And there's a fine balance there. And what has happened, unfortunately, in modern society, remember our uh, DNA has really not changed over the last 200,000 years. So we are that same animal on the savannah in Africa as we are in modern society. Yet the demands on our attention and uh, on that uh, human species that evolved to live on the savannah oftentimes far exceeds our capacity to appropriately respond or attend. And as a result, uh, instead of being in this sort of calm, caring, connecting mode, which is really our default mode, we are pushed over into have this uh, chronic anxiety stress, which leads to this epidemic in our society of depression. Uh, And the extraordinary thing, though, is that when you have this chronic release of these hormones, they have an effect on depressing your immune system, on causing very negative uh, peripheral effects on your physiology and your heart and your blood vessels, and, and ultimately your longevity. But the extraordinary thing is, with the practices I describe in the book, and which you're certainly familiar with in terms of Eastern philosophy and meditation and mindfulness, is that you can shift the balance back to this default mode where your heart uh, really uh, is open and there with you 
and you learn not to respond to this typical threat uh, mechanism that we have. You learn not to uh, respond to this uh, innate um, tribal response that we so often see that's mitigated or modulated by fear and anxiety. And basically what happens is that as you make this shift, uh, not only do you change uh, both mentally and physically, but the world around you changes and all the people in it. And fundamentally, when I said earlier, my personal circumstance following my interaction with Ruth did not change, it is how I responded to those circumstances, mm. and that was everything. And this is what happens when you shift from this stress-anxiety mode that engages your sympathetic nervous system to one where your parasympathetic nervous system dominates. Everyone around you senses that, and everything changes. Mm. And uh, probably a good time here because for this little passage that I picked up, uh, the mind wants to divide and keep us separate. It will teach us to compare ourselves, to differentiate ourselves, to get what's ours because there is only so much to go around. The heart, however, wants to connect us and wants to share. It wants to show us that there are no differences and that ultimately we are all the same. The heart has an intelligence of its own, and if we learn from it, we will know that we keep what we have only by giving it away. If we want to be happy, we make others happy. Um, this this could be a little bit of our mission statement uh, at uh, for Love Server Member Foundation, which is uh, our thing with Ramdas and uh, Mirabai and and other people you know. Um, and and this probably leads uh, uh, it's a good segue into your work with compassion. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about uh, uh, the um, well the foundation. Obviously, can you talk about uh, the foundation sure. you set up at Stanford. Sure. Well, uh, maybe as a, uh, to preempt that slightly, I would tell you, and, and this relates to what I said earlier, uh, getting to where we need to be isn't always a straight path. And as you can see from the book, and there's some, I think, some fairly profound uh, stories about, well, I did learn many lessons from Ruth. Uh, there were a few that I uh, skipped over or maybe did not listen to as intently. And until I had some very profound experiences and really went back and reflected on what she had truly said, was I able to move forward. Uh, and part of that was ultimately uh, a desire to... Um, explore this connection, if you will, between the brain and the heart and understand how the brain functions when it is compassionate or caring, understanding that this is our default mode. And ultimately, uh, are there ways in which uh, we can train others and uh, demonstrate from a scientific perspective the benefit of that? Because it's great to talk about the practices of different gurus, but in secular modern society, people say, well, you know, uh, that's not really true. You're biased this way or that. But when you can actually demonstrate uh, uh, how these practices actually affect the physiology and demonstrate that by doing them, uh, it can improve your life, your health, uh, mental and physical, uh, and increase your lifespan that's when it really means something. And so I had periodically left Stanford and uh, to do different types of activities, many of them entrepreneurial, and there's some interesting uh, aspects of that, of great success and great uh, financial loss. But uh, The fun uh, part of the book, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Parts of it were fun. Some yeah, were not. not so, yeah, well, <laughs> reading it. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, ultimately, I came back to Stanford, and... Uh, when I came back, which was in 2007, eight time frame, I really wanted to devote a part of my time to understanding this with and learn uh, about this. And uh, so I <clears throat> began uh, some initial fundamental research. And to be honest, 
this was not uh, embraced by some of my colleagues, uh, uh, not only in the neurosurgery world, but I'm talking about in neuroscience and uh, um, uh, psychology. In fact, there was some resistance, and ultimately, I ended up having to financially support the initial research just to get some of my colleagues to do it. But ultimately, this led to them understanding the importance of this and actually becoming excited about it. And as that work progressed, I was walking through the Stanford campus, and I have to be bluntly frank with you. I am not religious, as I explain in the book. I have no particular belief system, and in fact, I'm an atheist. But for some reason, as I was walking through campus one day, it popped into my head that I should invite the Dalai Lama to Stanford to speak about compassion. And he had visited Stanford in 2005 to talk about craving, addiction, and suffering. And uh, I had learned some degree of persistence and uh, intention. (laughs) And I found the person who had invited him, got the contact information. And this ultimately did lead to a meeting with him and uh, in 2008. And at that meeting, I explained this initial research that I had done. Uh, I asked him if he would uh, consider coming to Stanford to talk about compassion and interact with some of our scientists. And I was amazed because he immediately agreed to do so and and enthusiastically so. And he continued uh, beyond uh, the time of our appointment, quite uh, an extended conversation, and became more and more excited. And then he began an animated dialogue with Thupten Jinpa, who many of you may know has been His Holiness's primary English translator for the last quarter century. And they began this animated conversation in Tibetan. And I was really quite afraid that I had said something that had uh, angered or pissed off the Dalai Lama, which nobody (laughs) was pissed off the Dalai Lama. And uh, uh, so – this went on for a few minutes, and I'm sitting there just going, oh, my goodness, to myself. And at the end of it, uh, Jinpa uh, said, Jim, uh, His Holiness is so moved by this effort that you've begun that not only does he want to visit Stanford, of course, but he would like to make a personal donation. And at that moment, this very first meeting, he made the largest donation he had ever given at that time to a non-Tibetan cause, mm. which, I mean, it, it was overwhelming, profound, uh, moving. <laughs> Uh, um, and then right after that, two individuals came forward and wrote checks for a million dollars apiece oh, to further oh. support this work. Mm. And and then I went back actually uh, to the dean of the medical school and the head of the neuroscience institute, and I said, because I'd just been doing this on the side casually actually, and I said, well, geez, I have some money here, and I really would like to take this to the next level. And uh, ultimately, they were supportive, a little trepidation, I have to say. Uh, but when you have a significant amount of money, that always helps move the yeah. <laughs> needle a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and that uh, was uh, how the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford, uh, which is part of the medical school and neuroscience institute, uh, came into existence. And it's really been quite extraordinary. Mm, wonderful. And of course... His Holiness has large, big-time intent to marry uh, spirituality, consciousness, and science, and to be able to have, uh, I mean, they've, you know, thousands of years, they've been studying the science of mind through all of these incredible Rinpoches, these incredible lamas, and now he wants the scientific community to join him in proving us proving it out and uh and the corollary as well uh so this is uh just amazing that uh this all occurred to you you met him and and now doing this kind of work with him and of course i know richie davidson is is uh, primary and i uh, actually saw them at emory in atlanta a couple of years ago and talking about this uh, in a panel it was just wonderful work and just incredible what he's doing and of course if anybody is the living embodiment of compassion and caring it's him and in the book you say uh, here's my belief it's right in line with his holiness 
my only religion is kindness, right? What else is there? No, that's exactly right. There's one thing in that's uh, very interesting to me in the book, uh, and that is uh, the experience where you say almost died, did die, had a near death experience. <laughs> okay, um, this is something all of the above. All, all of the, the above. All of the above. Uh, Ramdas and I and uh, Mirabai actually is uh, at as we speak working on a book around death and dying. Um, just using uh, Ramdas has spent uh, much of his service life around that subject. And so we're compiling that and also getting his view from where he is now uh, as he's uh, he's doing really well, but he is closer than some of us. I mean, and he says that too. We never uh, know how each, how yeah, close we each don't of us know. is yeah, at any we moment don't either. We don't know. Exactly. But it is something that, that will be of a, a wonderful offering, we feel, and he feels. And some of the... W- interest that he has right now is in near-death experiences. He's been doing a lot of reading on it, and he's been talking to people. And so can you relay this experience? Uh, Obviously, there was a terrible car accident, and you can start from the part where uh, they thought they lost you there, and uh, your own experience of it uh, would be great. Sure. Before I do though that do that though, let me just say I, I recently gave a TEDx talk, which in some ways relates to this. And I said, for the last quarter century as a physician and neurosurgeon, my goal has been to prevent death. But that being said, some of the most profound and deep experiences I've had as a human being has been seeing those who have truly lived die. And for the last decade, my goal as a neuroscientist has been to understand what keeps people from truly living. Mm. Mm. Right. But um, so the incident you referred to, um, I had probably not used the best judgment, uh, frankly, and uh, had been celebrating with a variety of agents uh, following a rotation um, in, during my training. And long story short, I was a passenger in a vehicle. It was an older vehicle. It had a single uh, lap belt. And uh, we ran into a tree at 40 miles an hour. Uh, and as a result of that, I was immediately thrown forward. And that impact of that event resulted in me fracturing my spleen, transecting my small bowel, having a back fracture becoming partially paralyzed and losing bowel and bladder function. But in the process of resuscitation from that, uh, I was taken to the operating room to uh, explore my abdomen and uh, went back to the intensive care unit. And then uh, over a very brief period of time, my blood pressure started dropping because they had missed a bleeder. And uh, and all of this is well detailed in the book. And uh, I was immediately taken back to surgery. Now, what happened, though, as my blood pressure got to a critically low state, and I was still in the intensive care unit, the chief of surgery actually was arguing with the uh, deputy chief of neurosurgery, refusing to believe that he could possibly have made a mistake and missed a bleeder in my abdomen, and I'm bleeding to death. Uh, And uh, as that conversation uh, was increasing, uh, I left my body, actually, and was sitting up in the corner of the room watching this play itself out, which is really quite an amazing thing. I mean, to see the two of them arguing, (laughs) to see me (laughs) laid there. Mm -hmm. And again, this is sort of the classic uh, arrogance of surgeons, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Ultimately, my uh, neurosurgical colleague said, listen, if you don't take him back, I'm going to take him back. And ultimately, the chief of surgery did take me back. And I went to the operating room and remember seeing the lights and being intubated. And then the next thing that happened to me was uh, I was experiencing the classic near-death experience, which was hearing voices of those I cared about and who loved me, uh, reliving my own life, being on a river, uh, if you will, of light, 
uh, that was heading towards a tunnel of light. And it was an extraordinarily bright light uh, at the end of this tunnel. Or, uh, and what happened is uh, I started speeding up. And as I got closer and closer, I felt this incredible warmth embracing me. Mm. And it was this in, a sense of incredible love and, uh, and this feeling that if you met the light and became part of the light, that uh, you would be at oneness uh, with whatever that is, where everything in the world was connected or the universe, and you were part of it, and you had this recognition that all of it really was based on simply love. And as I got closer and closer to that and had this uh, realization, uh, I suddenly said, wait, I, I'm, I don't want to be there quite yet. And as soon as I thought that, uh, and I think I, at least in my mind, had screamed stop, uh, it was like I'd been on a stretched rubber band. And the rubber band, uh, the thing that was stretching it let go. <laughs> I zoomed backward. And uh, the oh next thing I, uh, I remember was I woke up in the uh, intensive care unit uh, with the nurse asking me, you know, how I was doing. And, uh, uh, and there you have it. Yeah. Wouldn't uh, people might, Jim, they might call that thing of that warm embrace and the love and the light. Some people call that God, you know. I mean, they do. And <laughs> the Buddhists. Of course, this is a classic going through the Bardo's experience, right, from the Tibetan Book of yes. the Dead. So uh, just, just it's amazing, staggering, actually. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting because uh, many people, uh, when I've explained that to them or told them this story, uh, they go, oh, my God, did that profoundly change you? Did you believe in God, et cetera, et cetera? And I said, uh, no, it had actually no effect at the time uh, in the sense that as a scientist I can go through the whole litany of explanations based on science and there's a body of literature as you're probably familiar with now that does explain this one is uh, hypoxic brain uh, one is the strength of these memory centers the strongest ones of course relate to growing up family relationships and as you start losing it those are the ones that come to the surface uh, so there is a body of literature uh, about that. And uh, so as a scientist, I chose to head in that direction. Now, of course, what's interesting, as you can tell from my own life, and uh, I have uh, many uh, close relationships with what are probably some of the most uh, – uh, deeply spiritual religious <laughs> individuals who yeah. actually, you know, have written endorsements or dedications for my book, yeah. including, uh, you know, those I mentioned to you yeah. earlier. Uh, so no one will believe me if I say I'm not spiritual. Or yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I guess I, I'm going to give up on that. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I don't know you and I'm just, <laughs> just meeting you. I know that. Okay. <laughs> I just can't uh, well, you know, it's funny. I was having a conversation. Uh, actually, John Kabat-Zinn and I, uh, he did a dialogue with me about the book uh, uh, last week uh, at Stanford. Uh, and uh, he started talking about that the reason I have these relationships is obviously uh, these uh, I've had some past lives or mm, mm, karma that mm. has granted me this unique position. Yeah. And uh, I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> uh, I simply say that I'm a scientist and uh, – I do talk about this in the book, but uh, it is interesting uh, to have this connection. And and, and there's another story I tell in the book, which is uh, regarding my uh, my own father's death, uh, where he had gone on a drinking binge and had taken a bus to New uh, to the East Coast. Ultimately, got pneumonia, was in the intensive care unit, and was critically critically ill. And the doctor called me to tell me this, and I did not have the funds really to go, and a friend of mine had loaned me some money, and I had planned on leaving the next day to go see him. And I was awoke uh, actually from a deep sleep at about three or four in the morning, and at the end of the bed was my father. And remember, he had been an alcoholic, and he obviously had made some bad decisions in his life. Yet, at the end of my bed was standing uh, my father, who looked better than I had recalled seeing him in years, and he had this sort of glow and this smile. Mm -hmm. And he greeted me and, uh, and apologized and said he had done the best he could and was sorry he couldn't sort of be how he wished he uh, 
uh, could have been as a father and that he loved me. And uh, uh, this event happened. I went back to sleep. I woke up the next morning uh, to the phone ringing. And it was the doctor to tell me my father had died. Hmm. Now, again, uh, depending on your persuasion, you could sit there and say that my father had died and had come to visit me in his spirit and uh, uh, and tell me these things. Hmm. Or, of course, another explanation is that, uh, you know, I knew he was critically ill and uh, was unsettled and... Uh, and this was just simply a dream. Mm. And, but I don't need to have those explanations. I don't need to be convinced that we're all connected. I don't need to be convinced it was my father. I know my father loved me. Uh, and I know we are all connected. Mm. And so, uh, so none of that really matters. It's like, you know, it's interesting because you see some people who will – spout off to you all the stuff they've memorized from different religious traditions, yet fundamentally they miss the core message, <laughs> right? Which is yeah. basically love, caring, uh, openness, and embracing. And, you know, uh, so I bypassed all the dogma. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, all you need is uh, compassion and kindness, and you don't need any of the baggage of that uh, dogma. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Uh, there's one other thing, though, before uh, we leave each other that uh, I do want you to share and us to share with uh, with everybody who's listening out there right now. Um, and there's a, a couple of things. One central thing, the brain chooses what it's familiar over what which is unfamiliar, just that concept, right? And related to our habitual tendencies are so powerful in how they control us. And in the book you say, when our brain changes, we change. That is a truth proven by science. But an even greater truth is that when our heart changes, everything changes. And that change is not only in how we see the world, but in how the world sees us and in how the world responds to us. And I know the work you've done with neuroplasticity and, and Richie's done and, and all, of, all of these people, that it is eminently possible for us through practice, and that's what you know, mindfulness is about. It's not about being a stockbroker and getting better focus and, you know... Making more money, Making right. more money. Um, it's about our ability to change our habitual tendencies, change our literally change our brain. If you just talk about that a little bit, and and really around, we can all do it. We can do it. No, I think that's exactly right. Uh, uh, and I had mentioned this earlier, and, and you just really uh, emphasizes uh, that reality. Um, we do not appreciate the power of intention to change our lives and those of, around us, and by doing so, change the world. Um, and it does take practice. Uh, you know, you hear people say, well, I tried this or I tried that, and uh, geez, it didn't work. Well, you don't become a world-class sprinter after running around the block once. And the first time you do it, it's not going to necessarily feel good or, or feel as if you're even uh, in that league. And maybe you aren't. But until you take the first step, you and the second, uh, you don't know. So I always tell everybody that uh, you can't immediately be discouraged. But if you do take the time and uh, ultimately develop that intention, you have an amazing, amazing power within yourself that often you don't recognize. And, you know, for many people, they see it as sort of this very dim flame that they can barely see. But what I say is that as you practice this, it is possible where you can become a flame of light and goodness that then uh, burns so brightly that... Uh, it allows everyone to see with clarity. Mm, beautifully said. Wonderful, Jim. Thank you for being here, and thank you for taking time out of, a, I know, a very busy schedule, and I really appreciate you. 
Oh, thank you so much. What a joy to be here with you. The book is Into the Magic Shop, a neurosurgeon's quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and particularly the secrets of the heart because mine opened when I read this book. And uh, and I'll, I'll say this again, and I made a big deal about it at the beginning, but when I especially um, have people on my podcast on Mind Rolling that have a book out, I flip quickly, right? And I get the essence and I do what's necessary because my time is, you know, unfortunately, like everybody, we're... I couldn't do it with this book. I couldn't put it down, okay? This is the first, it's a rarity, okay? And I just have to let everybody know it. Go out to Amazon. You can go through mindpodnetwork.com. Go through our Amazon link, and you can make sure that uh, use our link, and we'll get a few shekels uh, when you buy Jim's book. But do get it. It's just a wonderful book with a lot of great practical exercises that he was given by Ruth as well. So thank you again, Jim, and... Uh, I hope to, uh, I want to, as you continue to do this wonderful work uh, at Stanford that you're doing, I want to uh, continue to revisit with you some of this work in the future. Well, thank you so much. It's uh, really a blessing. (laughs) Thank you. Take care, my friend. (laughs) Bye-bye.